0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's bow our heads together. The privilege of ours is that the sovereign God of the universe is one that we can call upon to speak to us. By your word and your power, we are a privileged people, Father, blessed and abundant, honored, and brought together as a part of your building till your church is built. And you receive all the glory. We thank you that we might be able to gather here today and spend this time of worship together. That a variety of people from a variety of different backgrounds and positions in life can come together in oneness and unity To worship the one true God. And since we do come from a variety of ways, a variety of statuses, a variety of positions, we bring in a variety of problems and trials and sins. We pray, Lord, that by your grace we might be able to put those things to the side We might confess and receive forgiveness That we might lay it all down and that there be no barrier between us and the truth of your word this day. That the preacher's failures today might not get in the way and that you might speak with power and truth to our hearts, to our minds. Do that. We, you've promised to do that. We'll trust you to do that. That you will change our lives and we walk out of this place in a little while and we'll be a different people. Prepared for the work that's ahead. Empowered to be the church wherever you send us we pray, Lord, for the nations, for the unchurched. We pray for our missionaries here and afar that you will empower them with strength to do the work you've called them to do. Those that are in particular hard, dangerous places, Lord, we pray for your protection for them. We pray that. Our missionaries might speak and preach with boldness even this day as they worship you around the world. Those that are leading home churches in secret, in the dark, Lord, we pray that you might bring about a great harvest. That the work of missionaries, even the work of the the monies that we give a little bit later in this service might be used to bear fruit. We'll trust you to do that, O oh Lord. And this being a holiday weekend, Lord, we have many in our fellowship that are traveling away, and we ask that you would protect them, keep them safe. And this holiday being Labor Day, Lord, we thank you for work. And we thank you that you've ordained work for each of us. We pray that each of us might be faithful in our work. That we realize that it's just a tool that you provided for us to spread the gospel. Use our work for your glory. Thank you for uh, our leaders our national leaders, for our state leaders, our city leaders, Lord, those that you've placed over us. They have huge responsibilities, and their decisions affect the lives of millions. And we just pray that you would give them your wisdom, that you would draw them ever closer to yourself. And even the leaders of our church, Lord, we pray for strength and wisdom as we lead. Pray for the preacher today. Forgive his sins, for they are many. We would see Jesus today in him only. In his name we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to First Peter. And we began chapter 2 last week. We'll spend some time in chapter 2 for the next few weeks or months. Who knows? Well, Peter, in this passage, the text today is four through eight. He goes from Jesus using the presenting Christ as as food for a newborn babe to presenting Christ as a stone, a rock. Christian growth begins with taste, he says there in verse three. Um, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, now he picks up a whole new picture for us, and he says in many many different ways, you you come to him individually, you tasted and you saw that the Lord was good, but you don't live for Christ separately. You live in a body. You live in a community. You live in a spiritual house, and that's what he's teaching us today. I read a, a Pew Research poll this week um, that talked about the uh, what is important to different groups of people in looking for a church. Um, the research was interesting, not. Necessarily very very telling, but I guess Pew Research has to research something, so they decided to do this. The largest percentage of Roman Catholics, the number one determining factor for looking for a church is location. The largest percentage, uh, about 90-something percent, that was 76 percent, the largest percentage of evangelicals, the sermon is the most important factor. Now, that was, for a minute there, that struck me. I thought, wow, that's better than I thought. Well, for, for Roman Catholics, that makes a lot of sense. There's, a, there's an intentional uniformity in the mass that makes the difference from church to church not very great. Um, so location, would, you would think, would be more important for Roman Catholics. Sermon on face value. Or when I first saw it, that, 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 uh, that, that seemed uh, great. Um, but it could be, as the more I thought about it, that most of those people out there that answered this poll um, were not necessarily looking for a biblical expository sermon. Um, that might not be the key to their attending a church if they. In fact, some of you came today, maybe for the first time, looking for a feel-good 15-minute message. Sorry you're in the wrong place, but we're, we're glad you're here anyway. So most of those people looking for sermon are looking for a watered-down, feel-good message that lasts 15 minutes. And the pastor has tight jeans on, and, 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 uh, and he um, is funny. But ultimately, the location of that sermon is what we're looking for in a church. If the location's convenient, we'll go there. Pew Research, and even the members of our church, uh, and myself, we use that same word, church. Where do you go to church? Well, we attend church at what time does church begin? How long does church last? We, well, we don't know. If you went to our website, you know we don't publish an ending time. It's in our name, Grace on the Ashley Church. We almost always use that word church in the context of a location. Peter teaches us here church is not a location. It's a building, but not the type of building we think of. It's a building without walls. We think of a building with walls. It's far greater, and that's what Peter's talking about in our text today in 4 through 8. Peter's saying here in this passage that this is not a place, because it's built by living stones. Verse 4, as you come to him... For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. For those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And that's the word of God. You might recall in John 1, when Peter and Jesus met for the first time, Jesus said something very unusual and something he didn't say to anybody else. The Son of God looks at him and changed Simon's name to Peter, Petros rock Peter could not have missed that point as he's writing this letter later we see that word used in a in a different way and, and later in Jesus ministry in Matthew 16 Jesus comes to the disciples said who do people say that I am and they go through this conversation and Peter says you are the Christ the son of the living God and And Jesus says to him, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And throughout church history, there's been quite a bit of confusion about Peter's name and what Jesus says here. What does this rock say about this rock? Well, Peter's telling us. What this rock says about this rock when he talks about this rock in Second Peter. You got that? No, I didn't think he did. But we know now in First Peter 2 that Peter got it right, even though 2,000 years of church history got it wrong. Peter is not the person you want to build a church on. Just think of it. Jesus, I'll die for you. And he goes and hides. Peter's the one, one minute he's walking on water and the next minute he's under the water. Peter's the one who's sleeping while Jesus is praying and then the next minute he's chopping off ears. You want to build a church on somebody like that? He's not the sure foundation. He's not the cornerstone. He's not the rock on which Jesus will build the church. Peter gets it. And he's telling us in this passage who that rock is. Jesus alone is the precious living stone upon which his church is built. And, he gets, and Peter gives us three three pictures in fleshing this out in these few verses first picture he gives us a christ is the living stone as you come to him the living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious as you come to him This, this connects that this passage with the previous passage we talked about Last week, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's talking about Jesus, tasted that Jesus is good. He's referring to Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good as you come to him. The one that you found is good. Jesus, the one whom you've tasted, you come to him in salvation. But the tense in this, in the Greek, is that it's a continual coming to him, as you continually come to him, I used to sing that song when we, years ago, when we would have altar calls, we, we, with that, we used to laugh about having to sing all six verses of "Just as I Am, without one plea. what a great, doctrinally strong hymn, without one plea. But that your blood, the blood of the slain Savior, was shed for me. That's the only way I can come, by the blood of Jesus. But that you bids me come to thee. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. O Lamb of God, I come. As you come to Him, those are the ones who've come. Those are the ones that uh, uh, Peter's writing to there in chapter 1, verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and all of us as well. As you come to him, a living stone. Well, he's already talked about living things in in verse 3 of chapter 1. He talks about a living hope. In, um, in chapter 1, verse 23, he talks about the living word of God. And now he's talking about the living stone. We don't think of that oxymoron ourselves. We think of a rock. It's dead. Stone, cold, dead. We even use the term, don't we? But unlike a rock, Jesus is alive. And it's good for these people who are suffering that Peter's writing to because he's able to strengthen those who suffer for his sake. He's alive. Living stone to us is an oxymoron. But once he uses the word living, we realize he's not talking about a rock. He's talking about a person. He's no longer talking about an actual stone. The point here is even though Jesus is the church's foundation, he's alive even today. In the Old Testament, we, we see that analogy as well. We see the stability of God. We see the strength of God. We see the perseverance of God very often described using the analogy of a rock as a title for God. We see it a lot in Deuteronomy, and we see it a lot in the Psalms. And that same metaphor is used for Jesus. This is, again, um, Peter affirming the deity of Jesus. Using the same passages of Scripture that relate to God in the Old Testament, now he's relating them to Jesus. He's a, a rejected stone, Psalm 118, 22. A building stone, Isaiah 28. A stone to stumble over, Isaiah 8. An overcoming and conquering stone, Daniel 2. And Jesus used all four of those Passage, those Old Testament passages to describe himself in the Gospels. Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. Affirming his own deity. And he's a living stone because he was resurrected. God raising Jesus from the dead shows Jesus' value. Shows his choice of him. Shows that he is chosen and precious. You see there at the end of the verse. Chosen and precious. But he's the living stone rejected by men. In the parable of the tenants in Mark chapter 12, you might want to turn there because it won't be on your screen. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 in talking about his own rejection. First 11 verses of Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went out into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent... To them, another servant, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him, threw him out in the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus refers to himself in that, paints a wonderful picture, a sad picture of those who rejected him in the purpose of God, but to become the cornerstone of the kingdom. It's a further reminder, even in that parable of God's judgment, Even though Christ is the sure foundation for those who trust him, he's the crushing stone for those who reject him. If a person wants to be a part of God's building, places places his life upon when we come to him, we place our life upon that foundation stone, that cornerstone. But he was rejected by many. He was rejected back in the first century. As Peter deals with this now. And still rejected today. And when people look at Christ, he's a stone that that's not wanted. He's a stone that doesn't fit into their plans. Does he fit into your plans? No. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, maybe because he doesn't fit into your plans, because... You might have to do what he says. You might have to take up your cross and follow him. That stone might be used as unsuitable for what you're trying to build. It's just not worth the price. It's an expensive stone. Men rejected Christ because they wanted to build their lives like they wanted to build their lives. They wanted to do their own thing. So they cast the stone aside. He's rejected and disapproved by the builders. It could be the builders referring to the Jewish leadership at at this point. But Peter widens that to all unbelieving humans. And it means, rejected means the testing of someone. Someone put on trial, he's been tested and he's been rejected. And that rejection leads to spiritual blindness. Rejected by men. One more thought about that. Remember the triumphal entry? Oh, that racket. Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of David. Hail, King. Things go crazy in Jerusalem. Jesus enters, but Jesus knows. All along, He knows the Hosanna as well will turn to crucify him. But remember, the Pharisees say, Jesus, you need to calm your disciples down. They're making too much racket. And he says, if they stop, the very stones will start singing. Stones are important. We quit worshiping him. Even the stones will cry out. He's chosen and precious to God. It's direct contrast to that previous phrase. It's a parallel. You have men. You have God. You have rejected. You have chosen. Common parallel. Peter again affirms the deity of Jesus. And later, a verse or two later, a couple of verses later, we see this living stone called a cornerstone. It's the very stone that God has chosen is the foundation stone for life. And it's the only stone that can support and bear the weight of life. It's just as simply how God looks at Christ and His followers. It's a building. It's being built by God himself. And that foundation stone is his son, his resurrected son. So that stone is bound to be eternal. That stone will never deteriorate. That stone will never waste away. It's living and exists forever and ever. Some significant things about that stone. It's the first stone. The cornerstone is the first, or the foundation stone. Might be a better word for it. Is is the first stone laid? All stones are placed after that one is laid. The cornerstone is a supportive stone. All the other stones are placed upon that and determined the cause of where the cornerstone is and Christ is the only true foundation on which the church can be built. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 3:11 for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. So the living stone is the stone to which men must come to him if we want to become a part of, of God's building, it is to Christ we must come. You repent, you turn from your sins, you turn to Christ, you come to Him. You don't realize that you were chosen until after you come to Him. In fact, you don't understand any doctrine until you've come to Him by faith. No one can be a part of his building unless he places himself upon the foundation stone laid by Christ. So Peter declares in verse three, "If indeed you have tasted that the Lord of Good, that Jesus Christ is the source of the the, the, the believer's sustenance, and He's also the foundation. He's changed from growing to building." In these few verses, he's changed from an individual to a corporate form in these few verses. Matthew Henry says, Christ is the chief cornerstone that unites the whole number of believers into one everlasting temple and bears the weight of the whole fabric, elected or chosen for a foundation that is everlasting. Second picture Peter gives us. Believers are the stones that are being put in place by God. We're the building blocks of God's house. It's not those things. We are. Paul describes this whole thing in just a few verses that's so clear to us and Ephesians 219 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. We're being built into a spiritual house. The thought of that is that when someone comes to Christ, a new stone is placed in building the house. The spiritual house. As people continue to come to him in faith, they can because they're known as living stones. And we're living stones because... By God's grace, we share in Christ's immortality. He's the cornerstone. We're the stones that are being built, that God's kingdom is building up. The picture of the church. That's why I started out with the talking about the church. Pew Research poll. It's a picture of the church because it's a spiritual house. God's building it all over the earth. It includes all believers of all generations. It's a picture of what's called the universal church. Some people would call it the invisible church. It's a spiritual house. Spiritual is opposed to physical. Physical house is not permanent. This thing will fall one day. This thing will come down. This thing does age, right, Steve? And deteriorate, right, Steve? Waste away. But not God's spiritual house. You see the spiritual world is is the real world. It's the world that's permanent. It's the world that's eternal. The spiritual house of God does not age, does not deteriorate, does not decay. It's God's house. It's by coming to him that people enter the church. That's an important point. Notice that. It's by coming to him that people enter the church. It's not by coming to the church that people enter in a relationship with God. You also see something else that's very important. He intends for us to live out our lives in relationship with each other. Scattered bricks don't make the church. Bricks fishing in the boat on Sunday morning because they can worship God out there by themselves just as well as they can at church. Have you heard that? We came to Christ, and he puts us in a family. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. He makes us living stones, and he puts us into a spiritual house, and we're just one block upon another block upon another block building God's house. So it teaches us how it's important that we appreciate other believers, other Christians, those we serve with. God has a purpose for all of us to fill out, certainly individually in a sense. But a Christian who's not working in relationship with other Christians or fellow stones can't fulfill God's complete purpose for their lives and won't. People get mad and leave the church and they don't go for years and years and years and years. Maybe never. God can't fulfill their, His purpose for their lives unless they're in relationship with each other. William Barclay told a story from Sparta and then makes a point, but here's his story. There's a famous story from Sparta. A Spartan king boasted to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. The visiting monarch looked around and he could see no walls. He said to the Spartan king, where are these walls about which you speak and boast so much? The Spartan king pointed at his bodyguard of magnificent Spartan troops these, he said, are the walls of Sparta, and every man of them a brick. Barclay said, now the point is quite clear. So long as a brick lies by itself, it is useless. It only becomes of use when it is built into a building That is why it was made, and it is in being built into a building that it realizes its function and the reason for its existence. It is so with the individual Christian. To realize his destiny, he must not remain alone. He must be built into the fabric and edifice of the church. The spiritual house includes all those believers I mentioned earlier in chapter 1, verse 1, in all sense. Shows clearly how Peter understood that metaphor that Christ was using back in Matthew 16. That he's not talking about the local church. He's talking about the church general, the church universal, the church inter- invisible, the kingdom of God. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then in five, he calls us a holy priesthood. The great Truth that Peter states here is the revelation that through Jesus Christ, through His work on the cross, every Christian has become a part of a new priestly order. Every single believer now stands before God as a priest. The term, the doctrinal term we use for that is the priesthood of all believers. Martin Luther used that term all the time. It was revisited during the Reformation. And it means several things. It means that every believer has access to God. You don't need anybody between you and God. It means that you can serve God personally. It means that... You minister to others. We're all priests to each other. It means that you have something to give. There will be more about that next week. Holy priesthood. John Calvin says, It is a singular honor that God should not only consecrate us as a temple to himself in which he dwells and is worshipped, but that he should also make us priests. As priests, we make spiritual sacrifices. Priests sacrifice. Our acts of ministry as priests are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, he says. You see, good works, those things you do, are not acceptable to God based on their goodness. Those things are not acceptable to God based on their morality. It's only when they're combined with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that they receive God's approval. Spiritual sacrifices can be presented to God only through Christ, because apart from that, they're just filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. And then Peter gives us some scripture to support what he's saying. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The foundation stone, carefully chosen. That's the first time Peter mentions cornerstone. Very expensive, placed in position in Zion. We have the picture of the building of the temple at this point. At great cost and great care, the corner foundation stone is is located, and it's moved to a place, and it's laid. If that corner foundation stone, if that corner stone is not perfect, and that every stone is set against that foundation stone, we could have run Rivero, come and explain what will happen to the rest of the building once it's built. It falls. Isaiah uses this picture to encourage people to build on the Lord Himself because He's immovable, He's unchangeable. Cornerstone. Found that, that when we think of cornerstone, we think of that, that thing that they put in the corner of a new building and they inscribed something on it. Now, this, this is more like a foundation stone. It's the first stone laid in the first century. It was huge or even earlier. You can go to the... Uh, if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, have you been there? And you go down to the left. Not you ladies. I don't think you all can go. But if you go down to the left, and there's a library down there underneath that area down there, you can see from the the foundation of Solomon's temple. And those huge, huge, huge stones. Literally, it translates, head of the corner. And it's important to Peter. Those of you who grew up in a Baptist church, possibly other churches, other evangelical churches as well, if if you're old enough, you might remember a hymn we used to sing. Christ has made the sure foundation. Christ, the head and cornerstone, chosen of the Lord and precious, binding all the church in one. Holy Zion's help forever and her confidence alone. Started to sing it. If you forgot the tune, I'll sing it for you afterwards. That's it. Your confidence alone. Why confidence? Because that foundation stone is perfect. Chosen and precious by God. Rejected by man, but chosen by God. And the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Location of the stone is not the important matter. It's the function that's vital. Calls on every believer to trust in him. He's the object of our faith. Um, He'll honor our dependence upon him. He'll honor our obedience to him. We will not be put to shame those who trust in him. That's assurance. Christ lives forever and ever. God's eternal which means that building is eternal. Foundation stone laid by him will never decay. We're placed upon that stone. That, there is no greater picture of assurance than that. We can trust that foundation stone, that living stone. Some of those spiritual sacrifices that priests make, we priests make, are based on the firmness of our foundation. Those that are acceptable to him through Jesus Christ, he's to sacrifice his body as a living sacrifice. We see that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we can do that because we stand upon The foundation stone, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's to sacrifice his life to God as he walks day by day. Follow God in love. Walk in love, he says in Ephesians Five, Paul tells us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These are the spiritual sacrifices we make. And we can only make them because we stand firmly upon the foundation of stone, the living stone himself. We offer a sacrifice of praise to God continually. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him we let... Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name and sacrifices of good works and gifts and money. The next verse in Hebrews 13 do not de- neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Those are just a few of the spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about that we can make through Jesus Christ. Those who build up the spiritual house. The point is this, believers, we are the fulfillment of this prophecy. God determined that he would build a building that would be spiritual. And he would build a building that would be eternal And he laid the foundation when he sent Christ into the world. And believers have been laying stone upon stone upon stone of their lives upon Christ ever since. How do they do that? By coming to him. By laying their lives on the sure foundation. Those who've been built upon Christ have experienced the most wonderful thing. All the, never be put to shame. All the confusion, all the shame, all the disappointment in this life, all the fear of judgment in the next life has now just disappeared. That is blessed assurance. Then the third picture, Peter shows us. It's how unbelievers are disobedient builders verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well-known quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22. Peter brings to a climax the contrast between believers and and unbelievers. It's the same quotation, actually, that Jesus applied to himself in Matthew 21. It's the same quotation that Peter uses that Luke records in Acts chapter 4 in one of Peter's sermons, speaking to the Sanhedrin. The honor for Christians is linked to our union with Christ. But for unbelievers... Peter gives those two passages with a strong, powerful warning. First, Psalm 1:18-22, the builders rejected the building block that later turned out to be the final stone. The second warning of Isaiah 8, verse 14, where the disobedient are seen to stumble over the stone. So Peter warns those that those who refuse to believe... Those who reject Christ as Lord and Savior will stumble over the Messiah. Which is what they're destined for, he says. Now, what is destined? What's he talking about here? Is the unbelief destined or is the stumbling destined? Well, it depends on your belief of double predestination. We won't go into that. But to me, most likely, Peter simply means that this destined means their rejection and the consequences of their rejection. Because Scripture teaches us, we see particularly in Romans 11, a couple of verses, that disobedience is in the plan of God as well. But that doesn't make it any less blameworthy That doesn't make anyone less responsible for coming to Christ. To refuse to acknowledge that Christ is the great messianic cornerstone of God's spiritual house is to stumble over that claim and to fall on your face, and worse. The ultimate help... The living stone, the ultimate help for us becomes a hindrance. It's tripped over. And that the stone has another function. In that Isaiah eight fourteen passage in verse eight. He implies that the stone causes embarrassment or the stone is offensive. You put your faith in Christ, you may be offensive to other people. But the living stone himself is offensive. But why? Because the gospel is offensive to those who don't know. Preaching what we're doing here today is foolishness to the world. A rock of offense. Back when Jesus, right after Jesus was born... Mary and Joseph take him to the temple. And we're told even then that unbelievers stumble and fall because of The message, the experience that Jesus is the rock and that Jesus makes them fall. Simeon goes, the old man Simeon goes to bless the baby. And Luke Luke 2 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Some come, some reject. Paul oh, in Romans 9, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, writing about Jews and Gentiles, not pursuing righteousness by faith. And he says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jews and Gentiles alike will stumble. And the reason they stumble is because they choose to disobey the Word of God. Christ is their enemy because they've chosen to be a friend of the world, not a friend of Christ. Figuratively, they have, they have touched the gospel with their foot and stumbled and fall flat. And why do unbelievers reject it? They don't want the living stone. They don't think the stone will fit into their plans. The stone won't suit the building that they're building. The stone isn't worth the price. We've gone over that before. They don't think the stone is worth all they are and all they have. But he's the only permanent and lasting stone. And God's spiritual house is the only permanent and lasting building. And God selected him and elected him despite man. And if man is to become an eternal part of that house that lasts forever, that brings abundance of life, he has to lay his life upon the foundation, the foundation stone, which is Christ. And to get more specific, what do we stumbling? They disobey. So they're disobeying The word, they're stumbling over a word that has come to them. They're stumbling over the very word of God itself. And what's so awful about that is the word is the only incorruptible seed on earth that lives and abides forever. Go back to the end of chapter 1. All flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. It abides forever. If we reject the glorious gospel of God's Word, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation stone of God's bill, and then we're rejecting the only hope we have of living forever with Him and worshiping. We're appointing ourselves to a state of unbelief and disobedience. We're digging our heels in more and more toward unbelief and becoming harder and harder to the gospel. We're living lives that become more and more disobedient. You're disobedient today. It would be easier to be disobedient tomorrow and on and on. As we stumble over the truth of God's word. Simply put. There is a divine consequence for coming to Christ. And there's a divine consequence for rejection. Stones used in the construction of buildings back in the day when Peter's writing about it had to be a regular, precise size. They were cut with a hammer or chisel. Even earlier, First Kings 7, they used saws to cut them. Stones that didn't pass muster were rejected by the builders. Stones that weren't perfect, stones that couldn't be used to build a firm structure on were rejected by the builders. The builders here in Peter's passage represent unbelievers who reject the stone that is Christ, and that may be you. That may be you today. And God, the chief architect, takes this reject and makes him the foundation stone. He honors Christ by giving him the preeminent position in the building. And this building is God's household. And your only hope, it's a living hope. Your only hope is to come to Him. You think about that. Let's pray. In a moment we'll sing a hymn that affirms the truth that there's nothing in us that can come to Him. There's nothing you've done. There's no goodness in your life. There's no great work that you've done. Nothing. Nothing. By what you can say, yeah, I, I think I can come. No, you come empty-handed, based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. And if when we sing that hymn, you have questions, you want to pray with somebody, our elders will be in the back, and you can make your way back there. They would love to pray with you and speak with you. Father. We do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We do thank You and praise You that we have something firm to stand on, something that's eternal, something that's strong, something that's power. Oh, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Something that will last forever. Thank You, Father. Our prayer is that this day, Those that are here this morning that haven't come to you, they will come. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.